What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Ezra Levine. Ezra is the CEO of Collectible, a fractional ownership platform and community for sports collectibles. The business is less than two years old, but has completed over $50 million of securitized collectible transactions, completed over 200 initial offerings, amassed 75,000 users, and set numerous fractional and collectibles records. Ezra and I talk about the modern financial portfolio, how the fractionalization process works, the future of investing, and he even announces some breaking news about a special hire the firm has made. I really enjoyed this conversation with Ezra, and I hope that you do too. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've been wearing a Whoop for several years now, and it has made a massive difference in my life. It's the only tech product that I wear 24-7, so it's pretty cool to see people like Patrick Mahomes, Rory McIlroy, Michael Phelps, and Justin Bieber wearing one also. Whoop automatically measures your respiratory rate, oxygen level, resting heart rate, heart rate variability, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. Sure, it might sound complex, but Whoop interprets the data for you so it's easy to digest and actionable. And now, their 4.0 is officially back in stock and shipping in real time. But here's the best part. Whoop is offering my listeners 15% off their Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. So go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com and enter Joe at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is 8sleep. 8sleep has dramatically improved my daily performance. For me, I was never able to get a good sleep because I was always too hot. But now, I'm falling asleep in record time, faster than I have before, all thanks to my 8sleep Pod Pro cover. The Pod Pro cover by 8sleep is the most advanced solution on the market for thermoregulation. You can add the cover to any mattress, the temperature regulation will create the optimal sleeping environment by adjusting to each side of the bed based on personalized sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature. The results are proven to be true. Eight sleep users fall asleep up to 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get overall more restful sleep. And it's not just me who sleeps on an eight sleep. The product is so good that it's garnered the attention of CEOs, Olympians, UFC champions, and even the Mercedes F1 racing team. So go to eightsleep.com slash Joe. That's J-O-E for exclusive Memorial Day savings through June 6. Cool down this summer with 8sleep. Now shipping within the USA, UK, Canada, and Australia. Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, let's get into this episode. What's up, everyone? I'm here with Ezra Levine today. Ezra is the CEO of fractional share company Collectible, which is democratizing access for ownership of, started with sports collectibles, but has ventured into many other things since. Ezra, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. You? I'm doing great, man. Thank you for joining me today. I'm happy to have you on here. I want to talk through a bunch of things, but maybe the most obvious place to start is a little bit about your background and then what the hell Collectible is for people who don't know. You got it. So my, my personal background, I think first and foremost is I was brainwashed into collectibles from a very young age. My dad is a big collector. And so I grew up, some of my fondest memories as a kid were talking about collectibles being submerged in the industry. So, you know, I've been in this industry, not in a professional sense, but around it my entire life. I found my way to, to Wall Street directly after college. I was there for about 10 years, give or take. I also had the opportunity to co-found a minor league football league which actually has developed into what you now know as the USFL. 
So that was, you know, sort of my first foray into sports and sports entrepreneurship. It was through that experience and through, you know, my experience on the capital markets and through Wall Street that I realized that I wanted to stay in more of an operational capacity and do something in sports and in sports business. And, you know, the opportunity to, to do something in collectibles, which also, you know, had a sports overlay and a finance and a markets overlay was a really, you know, sort of unique opportunity for me and one that really combined both my experience, but also my, my passion and my skill sets. So we developed Collectible and we've been, you know, the, the leading fractional ownership platform within sports. We are expanding outside of sports, but, you know, we started in sports and we developed a real, you know, kind of leading edge there. Gotcha. So I think the most obvious thing to start with is how has this changed, right? Like investing for generation has changed over the last, you know, at least I think three, four, five years now, where this maybe once was considered abnormal or not necessary. And now it feels like this is a part of everyone's portfolio that's maybe under 25 years old or under 30 years old, whether it is sports cars or shoes or clothes even, right? It could be anything, but just the context of a portfolio has changed. What are you seeing there? Like, is that kind of the right way to look at it? Do you think that's accurate or do you think that we're not there yet? Yeah. Well, look, I think, you know, on a macro basis, first of all, you know, the, the interest in investing period for younger demographics has skyrocketed. I mean, even, you know, when I was back in school, not, not too long ago, though it feels like a long time ago, I never remember discussing with my friends investing or we never traded stocks or we never thought about alternative assets. It just wasn't part of our language at the time. Now, through companies, obviously, Robinhood is a prime example, Coinbase, right? You know, you, you have just younger generations that are financially literate, which is amazing, right? A, a huge, a huge boon. I'd also give you and your brother and your family a lot of credit there, too. You guys are, are huge champions of financial literacy and becoming educated on that. So that's awesome. You know, as it relates to alternatives, yeah, I mean, look, I do think that this is also the younger generations are growing up at a time of great distrust of institutions and distrust of how it's supposed to be, right? And so a lot of a lot of those theories and a lot of those concepts are being challenged and picked apart. And I think people are identifying that, hey, look, the definition of an asset doesn't just have to be stocks and bonds, right? There's a whole wide range of things that have historically produced interesting results and have historically compounded people's net worth and their cash. And so people are looking towards things like collectibles and crypto and, and other things as well that combine both the financial benefits, but also the, the psychic and the emotional benefits as well. So it is possible now to marry passion and profits. It is possible now to marry passion in your portfolio. And I think that extra edge, that extra element really is one thing that collectibles in particular has that no very few other asset classes do that make it so resilient in times of you know, sort of macro uncertainty like we have now but also ones that have led to a significant amount of yield when times are also good. Yeah, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but I'd love if you can share some numbers around the performance, whatever you have in, in context or at least directionally correct, because I think that's probably a large part of the story. And, and you alluded to it a little bit, but these assets have performed well, right? Which I think has been attention grabbing and it's got a lot of people interested. So any kind of data or numbers or anything you have there might be contextually helpful. Yeah, so what I will caveat all this by saying is that there is, you know, a liquidity discount, if you will, right? Or there's there's a difference in liquidity of some of these newer asset classes, particularly collectibles, which does make sort of a direct comparison with, say, stocks, right? Or the S&P 100, a little challenging. But taking the data that we have, there are some indices which suggest that 
you know, if you take the 500 most valuable sports cards in the world, or, you know, sort of a subset or an index that represents 500 liquid and sort of iconic sports cards, it has outperformed the S&P 500 by almost 500% over the last 10 years, right? There's a whole host of data which has shown that, you know, in various kind of market periods of macro and market unrest, that sports collectibles have remained flat, if not actually appreciated. You can go back to 2008, you can go back to the dot-com bubble, you certainly go back to COVID, right? We've seen during these macro periods where the equity markets are down 30%, for instance, that sports collectibles, sports cards have actually remained flat, if not gone up a little bit, right? On our market on collectible in Q1, for instance, of Q1 of 2022, right? When you had the stock market was down 15, 16%, crypto, I don't have the exact numbers, but something similar, 15, 20%. Collectible, our index representing all assets on our platform was up, was up 7%, right? Also on collectible, as of recording this, this is June 1st, 2022, in one year's time, collectible has produced 27 exits for our investors and our, and our collectors on our platform. Average return above IPO price is 62%. Right? So you know, what the numbers are telling us is, hey, look, you know, the market infrastructure is still very much developing. Liquidity, hard to compare directly against stocks, but there are certainly you know, really compelling data points to suggest that this has real legs. Yeah. And maybe it's also helpful too, if you can give some color or context around how that process works, right? You talk about exits and, and the 62% that you guys have seen over 20 plus exits now. How does that process work, right? Like from you guys actually buying the item or the card or the collectible to all the way through exit? Yeah. So we, we curate items that we think really check off a couple boxes, right? We're looking for things that are not just any collectible that you can put on your mantle and, you know, for 50 bucks, right? We're looking for the iconic investment grade stuff. We're looking for things that have historical and cultural relevance. We're looking for things that we believe are, you know, have iconic underlying subjects or, you know, sort of players or athletes or brands behind it. We're looking for assets that we think have real forward-looking growth to them, but also real, you know, sort of defensible, sort of consistent demand behind it. So we are looking for those, for those types of assets. Once we identify that, and it's usually through consignment. We've got great relationships with you know, some of the biggest dealers and collectors and professional athletes and brands we work with, a whole host of everyone. We securitize it with the SEC, and then we essentially run a little mini IPO. We actually call them initial public offerings, where we essentially crowdsource liquidity. We offer them to our community, almost 80,000 investors strong at this point. They buy into the deals. Once they're funded, they they literally start to trade on a mark-to-market basis like a little mini stock market. So I always say the easiest way to think about collectible is you can buy shares of, you know, of Ruth and Jordan and Gretzky and, you know, and all the greats of sports today and soon other categories in the same way you could buy Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google on the public market. So a tremendous amount of innovation happening in the collectible space. And we're, we're really excited to be part of it. Yeah. And again, maybe this is putting you on the spot and you can kind of say it how you want, but I've noticed at least there's other companies or businesses that are now popping up that are doing this in a slightly different manner relative to what you guys and the approach that you may have taken. We'll call your approach probably more buttoned up legal, regulatory-wise, and, and all of these things, right? And now we have this emergence of, of the digital space, which has made things a little less clear or a little more murky. So what I'm talking about is there's a certain process now where people are turning these into NFTs, right? And they are breaking them up, basically, and they're avoiding that whole process of securitizing them as these like mini IPOs. And 
I think I know that your process probably takes at least a few months to do from a regulatory standpoint, making the IPO, doing that whole process. Just talk me through your general thoughts on like, is that okay to do? Is that not okay to do in your view? How can you speed up your process? Like just how you think about that general idea in context. Yeah, great question. I mean, we are working directly with the commission to try to speed up the process. Yeah. How long does it take now? It depends, right? So the, the frustrating part for us is it depends, right? Sometimes it could be a matter of a couple of weeks. Sometimes it could be you know, a matter of a couple of months. There has not been a lot of consistency, nor has there always been a lot of visibility for it, right? So that has led to some frustrations for us. You know, we have a very good working relationship with the commission. We're probably one of the, the highest volume filers that they have, I would imagine. And they really are hardworking, good people who, who want to effectuate the right regulations and policies to ultimately make the investment space more efficient, but also to protect investors, right? That is their primary duty is to protect investors. So I commend them for the work they do. You know, I think we've emerged as thought leaders within this space of, hey, guys, you know, here's our pain points as a business. Here's what's impactful to us. And here's what's impactful to you. And so how can we meet halfway in the middle? So, you know, to answer your question on timing, anywhere between a couple of weeks to a couple of months, but obviously, you know, that can drive a truck through that range when you're a, a business that's operating in fast moving markets. To address your question on, you know, on the right way versus the other way, I mean, look, I mean, I would say it's a gray area, right? I mean, I think, you know, with, with, with a lot of these things, it's such a fast moving emerging space and regulatory environment that you can ask various people and make it different answers. If you study the history of regulations, some of, the, some of the regulations put forth by the commission, you know, our view is that the way fractional ownership is being done certainly should be done and has to be done in a regulated capacity that these you know, often look and feel like securities. And while there are potential ways to get around that, ultimately, that is not a game that we're comfortable playing, nor do we want to play because I think you know, the, the risk could be greater than the, the reward there. So Again, you know, certainly a fast-moving environment. Our job is to become the most trusted, the most reliable platform to facilitate the transactions and a really a free-functioning marketplace for collectibles. And we actually believe regulations are hugely important. I mean, I think one thing that we see is people often do not like regulations when times are good. And then when times get bad, people demand regulations and ask for regulations, right? And so I think you know, having a degree of regulation is hugely important, primarily for investor protection, but it also has to work both ways. It can't stop the flow of, of money. It can't stop the flow of capitalism. And it's got to be done efficiently so that businesses can operate and investors can operate. But again, I think there, there, there is a happy meeting there and one that I think we're working very diligently to strike the proper balance. Yeah, I think I agree with the majority of, if not all of that, because when you look at it, even from an investment perspective, again, we're recording this on June 1st, and, and today was the first ever digital asset insider trading arrest that happened, right? Someone was charged with it, at least, from OpenSea. And you get in this weird gray area where people were moving fast and breaking things and raising a bunch of money and trying to launch new products and chip things. And you couldn't exactly tell what was a security, what wasn't a security, what might be legal, what might not be legal, what might survive in a regulatory aspect and what won't. And I feel like the approach you guys have taken from at least what I've seen is a much slower approach, maybe in some instances, when it comes to debuting things and IPOing and things like that, but certainly a much safer approach, especially for the retail crowd, which actually probably leads me to my next question, which is, what does your typical user look like? 
is it a retail kind of investor? What is their like kind of net worth? What are they buying? All those kind of qualities. Yeah. One final point also on, on the previous comment. I mean, I think you know, if there's one thing markets in general, whether it's the collectibles market, the stock market, the crypto market, I mean, one thing every market hates is uncertainty, right? It's, yeah. it's much easier to operate. And even if you know there's bad news coming, it's, as a market, you prefer to operate knowing what's coming, right? The overhangs and uncertainty are really kind of the, the death of markets. And I think the issue with not having regulation is that there's always this regulatory overhang of, well, what if, right? And so I think we've chosen the kind of more safe path. Do you guys fractionalize NFTs at all or no? Yeah, so we can, right? So we, we haven't officially IPO'd them. Candidly, we had a couple in our pipeline and the market changed faster than the regulations and, and sort, of, sort of approvals allowed them. So we actually got saved by the, the regulations there. The investors got saved by the regulations there. But yes, we can. I mean, look, our, our process is theoretically, I could, you know, we could securitize a roll of toilet paper in the same way we can do a $6 million baseball card, right? So uh, yes, we, we, we can securitize an NFT, a digital security. There's lots of flexibility and, and functionality there. To answer your question around average users, Today, our average user is predominantly male. It's roughly in, in kind of the, the low to mid-30s and in age. We have a user in every state in America. It's a little bit more of an affluent demographic relative to some other markets. I mean, you know, today, it's, you know, the, the average household income as well is in the low six figures. The average household net worth is also in the six figures. The average trade size is in the low hundreds, give or take. We're seeing some really interesting activity. One really interesting thing that we've seen is the gap, the spread, if you will, of age ranges on the platform and, you know, sort of net worth ranges. We've seen everything. Our youngest user is 18. We have one user in particular who is over 80 years old, which is amazing because my parents barely can use a cell phone. And yet, you know, here's an 80-year-old who's actively trading our market. I had a 65-year-old ask me where to buy NFTs today. <laughs> I love it. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. I can only hope when I'm 65 that I'm asking questions like that. I feel like, you know, the, the tech curve is kind of passing me by already too. She, she said, I know that I can buy Bitcoin on Coinbase, but where can I buy NFTs? I say that's a different <laughs> topic for a different day. Let's settle on with Bitcoin first. I love it. I love it. And then, look, we also have people who probably are making their first investment in anything on our platform. And we also have, have billionaires on the platform. We're using this as a way to get exposure to curated assets that they might not otherwise know sort of how to invest in. So really interesting, really interesting stuff going on. I feel like the lack of liquidity that you talked about earlier is, is somewhat of a positive for investors on your platform, right? Because in a weird way, we've like transitioned to this world where not only are people more educated about investments, but it almost feels like people are looking for the lottery bets more especially with crypto, like crypto, I, I, you know, I talk about Bitcoin often, but the reality is there's thousands, tens of thousands of other cryptocurrencies at this point, And 99% of them just based on the numbers are going to be worthless or near worthless. And it feels like people are making a lot of bets, not only on those, but smaller cap items in general, whether it's stocks or whatever. And like the same investing principles still apply, right? Everyone makes fun of Warren Buffett because he's on like Bitcoin, but like he knows how to invest, right? He, he buys good assets and he holds them for a long period of time and doesn't sell them. And that lack of liquidity that you guys have with making there has to be an exit and you maybe you could sell it later on the secondary market, but there's at least kind of a holding period. I feel like that's probably a positive. What is your experience with that? Yeah, yeah. It's a great question. I mean, look, there's there's multi-billion dollars, if not trillion dollar of industries that are established on the fact that it's not liquid, right? You look at private equity, right? One reason why massive institutional dollars flow into private equity is because you don't see that mark the market, right? You, you, you can't get liquid. Oftentimes, the longer you hold something, right, your, your time in the market, not timing the market, 
the longer you have, you know, exposure to a market, historically speaking, you know, that has generated the most outsized returns. I do think, you know, in this environment where, you know, everyone's talking about liquidity, again, rising markets, liquidity is often seen as a great thing in downward trending or, you know, markets. Sometimes the lack of it actually is what prevents you from selling something that you would regret later down the road. Obviously, you know, our job is to hopefully increase liquidity in the platform because I think that that also is a function of user growth and et cetera. But I do think in markets like this, the lack of it could actually potentially make people more money down the road than if they had the ability to kind of easily panic sell some of the stuff they have. Yeah, it's the thing that you want liquidity, right? Whenever you can get it. But at the end of the day, some people just don't need it or, or shouldn't have it nearly as much as maybe they they want, which is a weird dichotomy. The other thing there too is sometimes people actually don't even want liquidity in collectibles because they love the underlying assets so much, they actually don't really even want to sell it. Right? I, think, I do think that's one thing that has actually made collectibles such an attractive asset class we talked about you know, before is people love the underlying asset. Oftentimes, maybe they love the athlete, they love the brand, they love what it represents, it creates nostalgia. So you do have this sort of passion for the underlying asset and collectibles that you might not otherwise have in stocks, right? I mean, very few people love Microsoft. They just have it because it generates a nice yield and it's made them a lot of money, right? Just part of their portfolio. But here you could have a Michael Jordan basketball card that you love. It brings nostalgia but also historically has done quite well for you. What's the most expensive item you guys have IPO'd on the platform? Currently on the platform, we have one of the, the most valuable baseball cards in the world. So it's a Babe Ruth, his minor league rookie card. So it's the first Babe Ruth card ever. So that's close to nine, nine million bucks currently on the platform. We've got some other great stuff too, some, some other million dollar pieces. My personal favorite piece, this is not security advice, just, just my, my, my favorite piece on the platform is the Wilt Chamberlain 1959-1960 home full rookie uniform. So for those who are not huge basketball fans or don't even know Will Chamberlain, Chamberlain was arguably the greatest big man of all time, but his rookie season was ridiculous. I mean, he broke eight NBA records as a rookie. He won the NBA MVP as a rookie. He averaged something like 30, 20, and 20 or or something ridiculous in this uniform. He wore every home game the season, unlike today where you you have players who swap out jerseys every day. He wore this for the entire season. So really cool piece. And that's for, for two and a half million bucks-ish on the platform today. I love that. Will Chamberlain's a beast. All right. How does the exit process work? So I know you receive an offer, people vote on it, and, and ultimately it gets sold or not. But who's buying these items? Are, are investors coming to you guys and, and seeing an item on the platform and making you an offer? Just talk me through how that process works. Investors, collectors, dealers, auction houses. Yeah, they're, they're perusing you know, our site. Again, you know, we're the, you know, essentially the only mark-to-market platform. So you see, you know, you know, real, real daily marks, everything's out in the open, everything's for sale at any time effectively. So people come check out our platform. They know we have you know, really great material, really great assets, and they'll come and they'll make an offer essentially to shareholders. And we'll do a pro rata shareholder survey. We'll, we'll take the temperature and the sentiments of existing shareholders, you know, assuming that it's a viable offer and, and the shareholders agree to sell it, then we will act you know, sort of in their wishes. Any problems ever there? Any contentious investors, people pissed off that they didn't go their way? Yeah, you know, the, the buyouts are always a little bit of a, you know, you know, sort of a love-hate relationship for platforms and buyouts, right? I mean, usually it's very rare that you get complete consensus. It's, it's usually comes 60-40 or 70-30. And so for everyone who's happy about a nice short-term gain, and certainly there have been some really good short-term gains, there are also people who say, well, you know what, I want to hold this for five years, 10 years. And so, you know, it's a little bit of a, of a big group think exercise at times. You can never please everybody. But ultimately, that's you know, one of the benefits and the drawbacks of shared ownership is that unless you have majority interests, you, know, you are subject to what, 
what the shareholders want. You know, same can be said about a public company. If you're a shareholder in a public company and, you know, someone comes over the top and makes an acquisition, unless you're the chairman or have controlling, you know, say in the outcome, you are subject to the outcome there. And are most of the people investing in these assets, are they basically building like a, an index of some sort? Or are they just kind of allocating a little bit of capital to each offer that you guys have or each IPO that you have? Or are they really truly selecting individual assets that maybe they either like or they think are going to outperform? It's funny. We see it all. I mean, you, you see some portfolios which look like there's real thought behind it and you know, they're allocated X percent to this, X percent to that. You see some gunslingers who, who put it all on black and kind of hope that it goes up. You see some people who are heavily concentrated in one athlete or one theme, vintage only, modern only, basketball only. So you, you, you see it all. But you know, what's really cool is that you have the ability on collectible to build whatever you decide to build and share prices and dollar amounts that are affordable to you. And so it's created a lot of liquidity, a lot of diversity, the ability to really diversify whatever amount of money you have to spend or allocate to collectibles. You can do it in a way that is very flexible and collectible. Gotcha. All right. I want to talk about some news that you guys are announcing today on Thursday morning when this podcast gets released. And that's that former SEC chairman, Jay Clayton, is going to be joining you guys as an advisor. First off, congratulations. That's awesome. Second off, talk me through kind of what this means for the business, what his role is going to be and so forth. Yeah. yeah we're, we're, we're thrilled to have Jay. You know, for those who don't know, Jay Clayton served as the, the chairman of the SEC for a couple of years recently. He really was a champion for, for the retail investor who looked to open up access for the retail investor to participate in opportunities that were previously only affordable to institutional or very wealthy people, right? So, you know, that, that's obviously very much in line with what our mission is to democratize access and liquidity and flexibility. But he's also someone who, you know, in the same vein, also really did a lot to protect investors, right? And to make sure that there were checks and balances in place. And so, you know, that push and pull there of opening access, but also providing necessary protections is something that we love. I mean, Jay is also, he's a collector. He loves sports. He loves, he's a big soccer fan. He's a big golfer. He loved the, the whole sports element of the platform as well. His role really is going to be special advisor to kind of help us navigate and to shape the structure of the collectibles you know, marketplace, right? We're really trying to build really the first ever collectibles infrastructure, right? Create a financial market infrastructure around a previously illiquid asset class that didn't have a lot of this flexibility that we're, we're an optionality that we're hoping to build into it. So really excited to have him on board. You know, I think for collectible, it's tremendous that he sort of saw the potential in what we're building. He saw collectible as the platform to kind of make that happen. For the alternative asset space, for the collectible space in particular, I think it's a huge nod of credibility that, you know, Jay Clayton believes in this so much. And so, you know, we're, we're thrilled to have him on board. He also currently serves as a non-executive chairman of Apollo. Apollo is one of the largest global asset managers in the world. He's also, I believe, a partner at Sullivan and Cromwell, one of the most notable law firms there are. So really, really a tremendously accomplished guy. And we're, we're thrilled to have him on board. Yeah, it seems like the perfect hire for someone that is going to be experienced in strategy and regulation and, and governance and all of those different topics. So that's great. Talk me through a little bit about what's next for Collectible, right? Like we're in this kind of weird market now where I feel like you guys are, are an established player. You're one of the top players in this space. You've built an incredible platform. You have tens of thousands of users at this point, I believe. You've done millions of dollars in IPOs and so forth. What is like the next iteration or the next step for you guys? Is it just expanding the product base? Is it a new offering, something of that nature? Just talk me through kind of how you think about it as the operator of this business. A lot, yeah. I mean, you know, there's still blocking and tackling for sure to be done. Okay, we've expanded 
We're starting to expand to other categories, right? So we've been sports only. We're starting to develop really amazing relationships and other collectible categories that we think are going to be uniquely suited for our audience. We've built an amazing process, real amazing technology. You know, we have a great team behind us. One thing we're also going to be building out, which we're excited to roll out as well, is you know, similar to what DAOs did, we're going to be essentially be building out the regulated DAO, right? So you know, we, we talked about uncertainty before. A lot of us saw the success of Constitution DAO, which really you know, enabled, sort of showed proof of concept of the power of shared resources for an asset that people want to co-own together. Right? Some of the concerns around that became, you know, what is it? Is it equity? Is it not equity? There's regulatory uncertainty. The auction houses had difficulty you know, passing them for KYC ML. So you know, we built the structure that we're going to roll out, which allows people to co-bid and co-own assets together there. So we're really excited about that. A lot more coming on the content initiative, on the educational initiative. That's something we're always going to lean into. But really, it's just it's sort of the continued expansion of our marketplace, enabling shared ownership in a regulated, safe way, bringing more users on the platform, raising awareness for collectibles. You know, ultimately, I think what you're going to see in due time is collectibles will be part of people's portfolios, right? I mean, I think we've already seen it. You know, certain companies are aggregating the ability to buy stocks and bonds and real estate and crypto. And I think you're going to throw collectibles into that mix. So I really do think collectibles will continue to gain relevance and really be a part of mainstream financial pictures going forward. Do you have any idea percentage-wise of, we'll call it maybe 25 and under or 30 under, how many people have collectibles as part of their portfolio today? So it's funny, I don't, I don't have those numbers offhand. My assumption is that you know, as this becomes more and more sort of widespread and more asset allocators and sort of wealth managers start to allocate it to, the percentages will certainly go up. It is something that you know, high net worth individuals have been allocating a lot to historically. It has not historically been something that has really been accessible to the general public, at least investment grade stuff. So there's definitely a lot of collectors out there. People identify as, as collectors, but not a lot of people have identified as investors in collectors because you know, the, the means to, to getting that exposure has not been there. Obviously, that's the mission of collectibles is to, is to make sure that's possible. Yeah, I'm looking at the PWCC index now, which you were, you were speaking to, I believe, earlier, right? Which is just the market indice for collectibles in general, the cards. And they have the 100, they have the 500 and the 2500, right? And to your point, the 100 is obviously a much higher appreciation relative to the S&P 500 than the 500 and the 2500. The 100 index is still up 1300% versus 218% since January 2008. The 500 index is up 900% to 218%. Even the 2,500 index is up 600% though. So it seems like the general idea, right, is if you don't have access to those top tier kind of investments or those top tier collectibles that may be worth millions of dollars in some instances, you're missing out on a hell of a lot of returns, right? And now you guys are giving people the opportunity, average investors, retail investors, the ability to get in on those returns or the access to those returns by democratizing that process. Is that kind of the, the general sales pitch or how you guys think about it? Yeah, you, you nailed it there. You nailed it. That's a massive part of it is to democratize access, give everyone access. I think, you know, the, the, other, the other benefit we provide is for big collectors, right, for big investors already who've been in this space for a long time, one thing that Collectible has pioneered for the entire industry is flexibility, right? And so we call this retained equity. Essentially, you know, what that means is you can now sell partial positions in your Collectible holdings. I mean, it's, it sounds very simple. You can obviously do this in crypto and in stocks. Say, you know, easy example, you own 100 shares of Facebook, right? At any time, you could sell one share, five shares, 10 shares, 50 shares. You, know, you don't have to sell 100% of your holdings 
in that asset at one time. If you rewind two years ago before collectible, in the collectible space, you had to sell everything or nothing. And there was no flexibility. There's no optionality. There's no ability to sell partial positions or dollar cost average on the buy side, right? So collectible has pioneered a ton of flexibility and optionality and liquidity into the system that I think, you know, that's one example of, you know, real innovation that I think is going to have dramatic effect on the ability for collectibles to really establish itself as a viable and legitimate alternative asset. I love it. You talked about the Constitution DAO earlier. And before we wrap up, I have one recommendation. If you guys do anything in the DAO space, you probably don't want to make the amount of money that you've raised public if you're bidding against Ken Griffin for the Constitution. <laughs> so that that is, that is one thing that we've actively talked about, right? You know, it, it is it is one thing which actually you know wound up hurting them in the end. There's that and, and the underlying currency fluctuation as the bidding was going live. So there were definitely a couple of things, but yeah, I mean, look, you know, when you're bidding on an asset, if you know where someone else is willing to bid up to, it's a huge competitive advantage. And so that is something that we're, we're going to consider in this new product. I don't know how much it went for, but if Ken Griffin saw 42 million or 43 million, he said, I got 45 million. He was not going to stop. Yeah, he wasn't going to stop. I think, what do you say? He bought it for his son, right? So whether his son wanted it or not, I think that was like a little <laughs> little jab to the internet people that, that like to make fun of him. But that's awesome, man. Congratulations on all the success you guys have had so far. We'll have to do this again soon. I'm sure that adding Jay to the special advisory group is going to do wonders for you guys. Last but not least, where can I send people to find out more about Collectible on the internet? Yeah, you can check us out. We're on the website, www.collectible.com. C-O-L-L-E-C-T-A-B-L-E. So that's A, not I. And then we have a mobile app that's available for both iOS and Android. Awesome, man. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.